Good evening, my friends. Thank you for being with me again for our continuing study in Reformation and Restoration. We are up to the I in TULIP, dealing with Calvinism, because Calvinism largely dominates the Reformation movement. Although it was accredited to Luther as being the father of the Reformation movement, Calvin quickly takes over, and uh, he inserts his own level of cancer, if you will, into the Reformation movement. The Reformation movement never did have a pure intention of going all the way back to Scripture, but it did want to at least do something to offset the apostasy that had been taking place within Catholicism. And so, I guess to that degree, we can give Luther a little bit of credit. But once Calvin comes on the scene, he inserts his own level of cancer, and uh, it just spreads like gangrene, and uh, we are still suffering under the consequences of that. In fact, most of those who claim Christi to be Christians today are have succumbed to a lot of what I would suggest are actually damnable parts of the uh, Reformation movement or Calvinism uh, that seems to have just been a pervasive fact, uh, perv what's the word there, invasive fact, is that the word, whatever, they, they really, it's a cancer that just has infected uh, the Reformation movement, again, the Reformation movement wasn't innocent from the beginning, but at the same time, Calvinism took it to a, a whole other level, we're going to talk tonight about puppet worship towards the end of this, because when you deal with the eye and tulip, irresistible grace, you get to the concept of a lack of free will, which is pretty dominant within Calvinism. So that's where we hope to get to sometime in our talk this evening. As I always try to do, I give you these five questions so that you can follow along with me, fill in the blanks, etc. part of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies. You'll have your homework done ahead of time. So pay attention, fill in the blanks, and here we go. Are you ready? All right. So tonight, we, uh, we want to continue setting this thing up with a, a reminder that the Restoration Movement did not begin with Alexander Campbell and Raccoon John Smith and, and other folks of that nature. Uh, the, the Restoration Movement began with the early church. Shortly after the church began, they began the process of restoring it. We know towards the end of the, of the second chapter of the book of Acts, right after 3,000 are baptized, that they continued daily in the apostles' doctrines, meaning that the apostles are teaching it, they're continuing in it, but there is no doubt individuals who are not staying with the apostles' doctrine. You don't have to pedal too far into the book of Acts and you begin to find some of those individuals who have to be challenged to restore. And so the restoration movement does not begin, as I've already said, with uh, Stone-Campbell movement as it's often referred to. No. The Restoration Movement started all the way back at the beginning of the church, and we are commanded to continue, in a generational way, continue, continuing to restore New Testament Christianity. As you've seen each time, Matthew chapter 28, this is the words of Jesus before he leaves uh, the planet. He says, listen, I want you to do a lot of things, and you can see them listed there, but specifically verse 20, I want you to teach those disciples who you baptized. I want you to teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And so the apostles then are, are tasked with going about teaching what Jesus taught them. Part of those teachings are going to be written down in the New Testament for you and I to have during our time frame, during our, our time period, 
And then we can know what Jesus taught those individuals. Those individuals were inspired by God. They're first century men who were given the message, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to present it. And then it becomes part of our New Testament. That process starts before the, the end of the first century. The Catholic Church did not give us our New Testament, no matter what they want to claim. That process started before the end of the, of the first century. God's men are writing down these thoughts. And these thoughts then encapsulate what we have to know in order to appreciate the gospel. In fact, Paul will write to the church in Galatia. He'll say, don't even accept, even if an angel from heaven shows up, don't accept it. There will be no more addendums. There will be no more supplements to the gospel. Well, I want you to see this passage here, Revelation 22, because I've been trying to add a passage each time. Uh, here we're at the end of the book, obviously, and the collection of the New Testament books, and, and you see the words of the Holy Spirit right towards the end of the end of the New Testament. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And so you see the curse is placed upon those who would fail to restore the purity of the gospel, the, the purity of the, the prophecy that is being presented specifically in the book of Revelation. <coughs> I admit that. <coughs> Excuse me. This passage is inspired specifically about the prophecy within the book of Revelation. I, I admit that. But it does set a precedence, which I think we can easily prove in other books, that God holds us to. And that is that we need to be constantly in a restoration mode going back to the original that was taught by the apostles. You'll notice that there's two curses that are basically placed upon them. Anybody adds, the plagues of this book will be added to them. Anybody takes away, then they're going to have their share in the tree of life and the Holy Spirit. That will be taken away. And so you can see that this is a serious thing for individuals to not restore, to not stay with, to not go back to the purity of the prophecy. And so I think this is another passage that you can add in to suggest that, yes, we are called to restore New Testament Christianity. But as I promised in the introduction, we're going to now move on into the fourth letter of the tulip, and that is irresistible grace. You can see the quote that is there. Uh, that, uh, here, let me move over there a little bit because you can't see those letters very well. I, I don't think that helped much either. Let's see if I can get something here. I want to make sure that you can read that. Let's see. Yeah, there we go. There you go. There you can read it all, can't you? Uh, for, forgive my notes on the back here. <laughs> but anyhow, that's a quote from Calvin. It's in my little book that you can see. It's advertised there, and he's basically going to set up the idea of irresistible grace. The thing that's odd about irresistible grace is that it's just one more step in the extremism of Calvinism. Go back to the, our list there up in the yellow. It's not depravity. It's total depravity. It's not election, it's unconditional election. It's not atonement, it's limited atonement. And now it's not grace, it's irresistible grace. And that last one, the P, perseverance for the saints, that's actually once saved, always saved. Calvinism is, is, a, is a doctrine of, of extremisms. And perhaps tonight is one of the best examples of that. It's not that we are called to a grace, but we're called to an irresistible grace. In other words, grace is not something that God offers it's something that he insists upon. Does that sound like grace to you at all? Yet that's what Calvinism teaches. And we'll see this evening many passages that offset that damnable idea. 
let's start with the book of James. Probably the, the brother of Jesus. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate as to who James is, but I think he's the brother of Jesus, and many scholars do. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. I want you to, I've got that underlined because I need you to understand who he's addressing. James himself says, I'm talking to the church. I am talking to the saved. I am talking to what Calvinism would call the elect. Okay? Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Notice all those things he's mentioned there, and he says, look, those things do not produce the righteousness of God. And yet we're told that grace is irresistible, as if you are mesmerized by it, and you have no choice except to succumb to the influences of grace. Notice verse 21. Therefore, because of what I just said with that list, he says, put away. That's an action concept. That's an action phrase. That's something that you've got to do. And again, it causes me to wonder, how can grace be irresistible if I've got to do something? Why do I need to put away anything? Why even tell me? If there's such a mesmerization to grace that I have no choice, I'm just kind of zapped with it and I've got to be it, then why would I be told, told to put away something if it's irresistible? Put away all filthiness and rampant, rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. That's interesting. Notice that there's got to be a reception, that you have to choose to receive it. If you don't choose to receive it, there's no receiving. It's forced upon you, which is the viewpoint of Calvinism. Calvinism, for grace is not, an, not a gift. Grace is an assignment. But he says you've you got to receive it, but he goes on to explain it's not just receive it. Receive it with meekness. You see, that's a condition. That's a condition outside of the irresistible word because that's a condition that you choose beyond <coughs> the, the irresistible nature, if you will, if it even was that. You choose to have a meekness in your reception. That's not irresistible at all. Irresist, excuse me, receive with meekness the implanted word. They love to stick that phrase. Implanted. See, the word is implanted in your heart. I have no argument with that. God's word is planted within our hearts. According to Romans chapter 1, God's word is planted in every human's heart because every human is without excuse. God's word through nature screams, there has to be a being bigger than me, and I need to succumb to that being. Romans chapter 1 says, when we don't succumb to the leadership of that being, when we don't choose with our free will to say, I submit to that being, then we are without excuse. So yes, the word is implanted in the hearts of everyone because of the evidences that surround us. But notice what he goes on to say, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So the word that's implanted saves us. Yet we have to receive with meekness. We also have to put away all filthiness. And he's writing, go back to the first phrase, he's writing to the church, the saved, those who Calvin would suggest are the elect. So if grace is irresistible, and James is speaking to the saved, why does he tell the saved that they have something to put away? Why does he tell the saved that they've got to receive? Because grace is not irresistible. And as we'll see next time with regards to perseverance of the saints or once saved, always saved, grace can be abandoned. Once saved, always saved is a damnable doctrine that has caused a lot of people to just kind of sit back in their spiritual recliners and think I'm all in. I can't tell you the number of Baptist preachers I've heard during their 
funeral service, preach a guy into heaven because he received Jesus when he was a teenager. And although he's lived a horrible life since then, once saved, always saved. God forgive us for such damnable doctrines. Yes, you can walk away from your grace. Grace is not irresistible, but there's more. I want you to also notice 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers. Again, notice who he's referring to here. Paul is writing to the church, the saved, those who Calvin would say are the elect. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, hold on. Why did they have to receive it? If grace is irresistible, there should not have been any receiving because they should have just been zapped with it and they had to have it. By which you are being saved. Big word there. Notice I've got it circled, circled. I want you to understand that Paul, as he writes here and elsewhere, Paul describes the salvation that we have as a process. Not necessarily a point of time, point in time. I can point to a moment in time when the process begins. That's clearly Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. That's at baptism. That's when you're cleansed, according to the book of Colossians. By the very hands of Jesus, you are circumcised, brought into the family. That's when the process begins. But according to 1 John chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and other places, it is a process that must be ongoing. It's a process that must continue. And notice he says, it's by which you are being saved if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. If grace is irresistible, why is the word if there? It seems like if grace is irresistible, then grace is absolutely established as a done deal. There is no if. There is no uncertainties. And yet Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he describes it as an if situation. You have the responsibility to hold fast. You've got to hold on to what you have. You're to hold on to your salvation specifically in context. And then finish the reading. Hold on fast to what I appreciate, unless you believed in vain. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that belief can be vain. It tells you that vain means empty, without value. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. But Lord, Lord, did we not in your name cast out demons, etc., etc.? At the end of that passage, it says, depart from you. Depart from me, you evildoers. How could they be evildoers when they've done such good things like casting out demons, speaking prophecy, etc.? How could they be evildoers? They could be evildoers because their belief was in vain. Their belief system was rooted in what they thought they should do, not what God told them to do. And so here he clearly says that it is possible to believe in vain. And he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to brothers. See the first word that I got underlined in this passage. So it is possible for your belief system to be secure and then drift away. And you then go off into a vanity, a dead faith, a faith that cannot save you according to James. What is that? Chapter 2? How about Revelation 3? Those whom I love, I, repro I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous. Now hold it. <laughs> hold on. If grace is irresistible, why do I need to have a lesson in zealousness? Is that a word? <laughs> Being zealous. Why do I have to have anybody remind me to be zealous? Grace is irresistible. If I'm in, I'm in. 
If I have been overwhelmed by grace, I'm overwhelmed by grace. You don't need to tell, remind me to be zealous. I'm overwhelmed. And repent. Repent? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. This is your Savior. If you have cast off the damnable doctrines of Calvinism, and you're actually, you're actually submitting to the, the plan that God has for you, Romans chapter 7, 21 through 23, you're not building your faith upon what you have done, but rather building your faith on what he has commanded, and therefore you have submitted to it. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. What? I thought grace was irresistible. Why would Jesus stand at the door and knock if it's irresistible? What's the purpose? Why knock? Why stand? Why not just break down the door or just walk on through because it's irresistible, right? I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers. That's another action concept. Why would I need to go on to conquer? Why tell me to conquer? Grace conquers for me. It's irresistible. I've been overwhelmed, overcome to, by grace, and it's conquering for me. Don't tell me to conquer. Grace is doing a job for me. Grace is not irresistible. To make it such is to remove the beauty of what grace really represents. <laughs> How about 1 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> verse 1, and Romans 8, 16, two passages building on each other. I love to do this because when you see the harmony of the words of God, you begin to see what God really intends by the unity of his words, not by cherry-picking your way through Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1, working together with him. Read the context, that's speaking of God. We're to work together with God. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Hold it. We've already seen that belief can be in vain, but he says here that grace can be received in vain. And again, I want you to notice that he's saying that grace needs to be received. Why? If it's irresistible, there's no need for reception. It just is. It just comes upon me, right? God controls it. He overwhelms me. I don't need to receive it. I mean, that almost sounds like I got a free will opportunity to make a choice here. Yeah. Receive the grace of God in vain. Imagine. Yeah, it's possible to receive it in an empty manner. Romans 8.16 ties in again with this idea of the working together, the, the partnership that we have with God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice it doesn't say the Spirit of God bears witness without your influence because it's irresistible. No, it says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So our spirit has some level of influence over this whole thing as well. Grace is not irresistible. Grace is a gift that was offered to you, not an assignment that was forced upon you. Speaking of that, Notice Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The book of Hebrews is a really tough book for Calvinists because the book of Hebrews, that's where you go to find the passage. It talks about a dog returns to his vomit, etc. And so <clears throat> they really struggle with the book of Hebrews because it... it obviously offsets a lot of their damnable doctrines. But I wanted you to see this phrase here, fails to obtain. <laughs> if grace is irresistible, 
you don't fail to obtain it. <laughs> if God wants you to have it, you're going to have it. And yet here he instructs them that they are to make sure that they pay attention. See to it that no one fails to obtain. How can grace be irresistible if there is some level of decision-making that's placed upon me? That I, I could possibly fail in obtaining it. Irresistible grace is a damnable doctrine that takes away the shine from grace and needs to be exposed, which we are trying to do in this series. <clears throat> Back to that idea of gift. Ephesians 2 and 8, again, one of their most favorite passages. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And they love to take that. They cherry pick that. They pull it out and they say, see there, there's nothing that you can bring to the table with regards to your salvation because it's not of you. The thing that they fail to recognize there is that every gift, if it is truly a gift, requires that there be a recipient. And every recipient, if he is truly a receiver, has the free will to either accept it or reject it. If grace is irresistible, it's not a gift. If grace is irresistible, it's an assignment by God. He hasn't offered you something. He has assigned you something. And as I've said twice now, I think already, when you allow the damnable doctrine of Calvinism to suggest to you that grace is irresistible, it sounds so great on the outside. It's got such a flowery packaging on the outside. God is responsible for everything. But in the process of doing that, you deny what God has given to you, and that is, he gave you his image. And you deny that the gift is actually a gift. Now you make it an assignment. And i got to be honest with you, I grew up in a very legalistic fellowship that stole my joy, spiritually speaking, as I was a child and, and into my teenage years. Uh things that were required of me that almost made me feel like I had to do these things in order for me to, to work my way to a good relationship with God. And I feel like that even though Calvinism would argue against that, that's actually what they represent when they remove grace from the status of being a gift. They make it into an assignment. Now, their assignment would be that it's not that you do anything, it's that you are reduced now to a puppet. It's not that you make any choices, it's that you are somebody who God manipulates into doing whatever he wants. Which leads me to Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12 and 1, it clearly defines worship as being something that has to include a sacrifice. I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, again, notice he's writing to the church, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship, reaching out to God, requires a sacrifice. If you have nothing that belongs to you that is uniquely yours, you have nothing to sacrifice. If grace is irresistible, then at, God is basically puppeteering your worship. Because you don't have anything to give. So God, as if you're a marionette and he's, he's dangling you here and he, he makes you say, praise God. He makes you come to conclusions, whatever they may be. He doesn't allow you to choose those conclusions. He, 
He puppeteers you into that condition. Do you see why I continue to re repeat this line? That if grace is irresistible, it takes the shine off of grace. The beauty is gone because grace is no longer a gift, an offering by God, a partnership that he reaches out and he says, I want you because you're like me. I created you to be like me. And in that image that you share with me, there is a free will. And so will you free will to choose me? But according to Calvinism, we don't get to do any of that. And so God basically, if you want to say it this way, and I, I'm going to go ahead and do that. If grace is irresistible, then grace is something that cannot be rejected, cannot be resisted. And therefore, God reigns over an echo chamber, essentially. It's an echo chamber in which he puppeteers and manipulates our worship. And you notice I've got worship in quotes because it's not really worship at all, according to Romans 12.1. In order to worship, you've got to have something to give. But if I'm a marionette, if I am puppeteered throughout my existence and God chooses everything, including grace, I'm not offering you grace. I'm saying you got to have it. That's the position of the Calvinist. Then I can't worship, which is perhaps one of the saddest parts of what Calvinism leads to, an absolute inability to worship. Because if you're totally depraved, but grace is irresistible, then that means that an individual who has nothing, totally depraved, and is forced into grace, has no offering to present. There's nothing that I have to give to God, and so I cannot worship irresistible grace, damnable doctrine, not of God, as we've shown in repeated passages here. And I beg of you to make sure that you expose it in your own context, because far too many of our children are being led away into this gimmick religion, where they paint everything with extreme words that are designed to make you feel like that, oh, that, that's like a candy shop, and it sounds so good. But when you really dig deeper, you recognize that it's a caramel apple with a worm in the middle. Be careful with the damnable doctrines of Calvinism, which is the cancer and root of the Reformed theology. Well, there are the five questions I attempted to cover. I think we did pretty good. hope we did. If we didn't, study it out on your own or write into me and see if I can offer some other direction. I love you. I appreciate you for being with me. God bless you. This is Sonny Chow saying, be there, Matthew 16, 26.